everyone. Good to see you again. God bless you. Glad to be with you. It is a beautiful day out. Some of you are going, what? But it's not super sunny. It's warm. It's nice. We don't have to have the sun beating on us all the time that way where we got a seat cover, you know. It's just a good day. You know why it's a good day? Because Jesus is on the throne. Amen. Jesus is on the throne, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Well, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy. I think today we're going to make it through the first chapter. Amen? Amen. We're praying for it. The Lord should lead here. But there's so much meat on the bone, you just can't rush this. It's like walking away from the finest meal we ever have in our lives. He's, he's prepared it for our hearts. We come in to meet with him and sup with him. That's what he meant when he says, come out, come in and sup with you. I'll eat with you. I'll fellowship with you. When we eat the word of God, we chew it that way. We don't just swallow it, right? No, we, we enjoy it. We, we let it change our hearts. We let it change our minds. It recalibrates us. And yes, I talk about food a lot. I understand. Well, a couple announcements, and then we'll, we'll jump in as you guys are there. Anybody need a Bible? If you need a Bible, raise your hand. One of the ushers or adults will bring you a Bible, okay? But while you're doing that, um, so we, we met with the engineer. I think I told you guys, pray for that. Please thank you for doing that. Uh, we met with the engineers, and some of the stuff started coming back. We, we were over at Kinsley on Monday with some of the contractors, and, you know, I'm just grateful we have a committee, a group that are coming together and praying because you look at this stuff, and it's, whew, it's a lot. There's a lot that goes into this. So I'm going to ask all of you as a body, please keep praying because there's a lot of decisions. And, and I was just covering it last Wednesday. We need wisdom from on high, don't we? We need wisdom from on high to make these decisions because we want this to be this, the, the new building, just a place where we can come in and worship. It doesn't have to be fancy. It just has to be a place where we can come in and be discipled and people can come in and be saved and be taught the word of God line by line and verse by verse. So keep praying. And uh, we're, we just approved the, uh, we, we approved the first portion of the engineering. We're going to self-fund that, pay for that without going to the banks. That's the plan, as the Lord should lead. Um, so we're going to do that. So if the Lord puts it on your heart, keep giving towards the building and land, please do that in addition to whatever else. But only if the Lord shows you, you be faithful to the Lord and listen to him um, and do, you know, be obedient that way. But uh, most, most important thing, I'll tell you, is your, is your prayers. Your prayers, just for all of us and, and for all those involved, Kinsley and those people, the contractors, everybody, because they're, they're trying to do everything for us to help us. And so they're trying to make sure they're okay too, you know. They don't want to underbid themselves and get into trouble, you know. So please, there's so many people that just love us and love what the Lord's doing here, and they're going before us. So please lift all of them up in prayer, okay? And for all those that are sick and that need prayer and healing, because God is good and he heals. All right, as we look, we've come as far as verse 8 here this morning. We're going to be, uh, I'm just going to jump back to chapter 1, verse 1. I'll read through, I won't exegete, don't worry, we will get to verse 8. Uh, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of our Lord and Savior, uh, God, our Savior, and our Lord Jesus Christ, our hope, to Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, our Father, and Jesus Christ, our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. Now the purpose of the commandment is love, love from a pure heart from a good conscience and a sincere faith. For which some, having strayed, having turned aside to idle talk, babbling, 
desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. And that's what we've covered the last few weeks, and now here we go. But we now, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless, the insubordinate, for the ungodly, for the sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators and sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there's any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Wow. Just take a moment to let that set in. Let's pray. Father, the way you've just laid this out so perfectly, Lord, you've, you've created such a, di- a dichotomy there between sound teaching, your word, good doctrine, and then all the sin of the world. That's exactly, completely uh, opposite and juxtaposed to that. It really is that simple, Jesus. We believe. It is that simple. We choose and receive you, Lord, that we wouldn't walk out these sinful things, that we wouldn't be manslayers and fornicators and sodomites and kidnapping. We wouldn't be any of those things, Lord. Because we're a new creation and the old things have passed away and all things have been made new. Praise you, Jesus, for that. That we're not who we were, but we're sons and daughters of the living God. Thank you for that gift of grace, Lord, that you gave to us. So liberally you poured it out to us. We're so ever grateful for it, Lord. And now we pray God minister to our hearts this passage. Speak to our hearts in a way, Lord, where it's just simple and understandable and and we're able to to take these things and commit them to the obedience in your name Jesus that our will and our ways would be conformed to you that our actions and our judgments would be conformed to you and most importantly that our heart Lord would be a heart after you God our Father we ask and pray this in your holy and mighty name Jesus Christ and all God's people prayed Amen. amen So as we just read through verses 8 through 11, Paul here is laying down a condemnation um, for the legalists. He's not condemning the law itself. That's important because Christ came to fulfill the law, right? He wasn't necessarily saying the law was bad. We'll talk about that. We as New Covenant believers, we're not under the law. Acts uh, tells us that in the book of Acts, chapter 15. We're not under the law that way, right? We're under a better covenant. But certainly... What was the law instituted for? He, he, Paul says, but we know that the law is good. It's good if one uses it lawfully. What is the purpose of the law? It's to show us our sin, isn't it? That's what it's always been. The law never saved. Otherwise, Romans chapter 3 wouldn't have been written, right? Chapters 1 through 3, as a matter of fact, where the entire world is brought into condemnation or conviction, better put, because of our sin. Because after a few years on this earth, we've lied, we've stolen, we've done something that's against God's moral law. We didn't treat someone with the love that we ought to treat others with. Love. Unconditional love. It begins there in the heart. And I think every one of us, if we're being honest here this morning, there's times where, what is the definition of sin? Missing the mark. Remember when it was Central America, we had about 150 kids gathered for a vacation Bible school. It was a sweet time. 
And I was asked to help lead that VBS as we were in another country, we we're in the jungle. I was just telling friends about this recently. And it brought back to memory because the kids, I was trying to explain what sin was in another language, you know, talking to them like that. And I said, it's like taking a bow and an arrow set, you know, a bow and arrow, you know what that is, archery. And it's like taking the target, right? And the goal of the target is to get the arrow where? Everybody knows this. Where do you want to get the arrow? In the bullseye. Everybody knows this. We all know this. You want to hit the bullseye. But it's like, if I could say right in front of me, it's like lining up here and the, the, the target's right in front of me. And I go like this. I turned away, didn't I? I, 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 didn't, I didn't even hit it. It wasn't that it was, oops, I've made a mistake. Or sometimes there's an intentional missing of the target. That's actually the definition of sin. That's why the word in the Greek, metanoia, to repent is to do what? Turn away. And where are we turning away from? From the sin, right? Back to Jesus, back to lining up where we ought to be. Well, he's not saying that the law is not good, right? Is the law broken or bad because it's telling us what sin is? Certainly not. What's the problem? It's me. It's my heart. It's me. I'm the problem. Sin is the problem. It's, it, 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 the law was never meant to lead us into unrighteousness, or righteousness, excuse me, I meant to say. Tur turn in your Bibles here, if you wouldn't mind, to Romans chapter 7. I'd, I'd like us to look at uh, verses 7 through 25 this morning. I encourage you to go back and study this devotionally, just timing, but uh, when you have some time. Romans chapter 7, verse 7. We're going to read through verse 25 here. But Paul's going to speak about in the church that he actually never visited at the time of writing of this letter. He never went to Rome when he had written this letter. Okay, so he, all, we all know all roads lead to, you've heard it, Rome, right? So he was writing it to a church he had never been to to warn them, to prepare them for the things that could be coming to this big city where all roads lead to, right? Um, and if you had not sat under the teaching this for line by line and verse by verse, I encourage you to do that. It's up on our website or on the church app. You can listen as we went through this line by line and verse by verse. But in context, what we're talking about is that the fact that chapter 7 goes through and it describes in context how Paul says, we're, through the Holy Spirit, freed from the law. We are freed from law, you and I. We're not under a law. Now, he's not saying we're not we're freed from the moral law. The moral law never expired, okay? Never expired. But we're free from over, you know, the 613 laws that the rabbis and the, the Jew, Judaism and what have you, you know, adhered to, or the uh, feast days and the other things that would kind of come alongside that, like the ceremonial practices. All, none of that is, is for, the, for the church or the Christian today. That was actually given at one point, all those things, initially as a sign to the Jews in, in Judaism. The law was at one time a sign for them. Now the law is a representation of what sin is for you and I so that we can repent and turn away, receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, to recognize the fact that we need a Savior because we have sinned. So look at verse 7. What shall I say then? Is the law a sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet, right? But sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment 
which is to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me, and it killed me. Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me. Though, though that is not good, or though it is good, excuse me, so that sin through the commandment might be exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin, of the flesh, for what I am doing, I, am not, I do not understand. For what I will to do, I do not practice. For what I hate, that I do. How many of us can agree with that, right? We're all with the Apostle Paul. And like, Lord, the things I, I want to do, I do not do. The things I do not want to do, that I do, you know. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Is Paul having one of those moments mentally where he's coming to this place and he's saying, it's not me. Is he an escapist? Is he not taking responsibility or accountability for his own sin? No, he's recognizing the fact is, is that he has given Romans chapter six. He's been given a new nature. When you're a born again believer in Christ, you receive a new nature, right? Because Genesis five said that you were, and I were born in the likeness and image of who? Of actually Seth. Originally, we came in the likeness of Adam, remember that? Or God, in the likeness and image of God, excuse me, not, not Adam. And we came in that likeness image, and then sin entered the world, and then we were born into sin, because everyone is sinned thereafter. And chapter, Genesis chapter 5 describes that. But then Jesus Christ, when he forgave our sins, and he redeemed us, he gave us a new nature. And so, what is the sort of fingerprints of that? We also received the righteousness, his imputed right, his righteousness that he gave us, didn't he? He gave all of us that righteousness. That's why when we stand before Christ, we're without blemish now. Paul's trying to describe this. He's trying to say that although I sin, it's not my desire to sin. It's not the aim. I'm not, remember the archery a minute ago? I'm aiming for the bullseye. I'm not letting the arrow go over here anymore. No, I'm aiming for the bullseye. Oops, sometimes I miss the mark, but that's not the aim. The goal is not to be comfortable within my sin, Right? And so certainly the law produced a purpose and that it, it told him, well, covetous is wrong. Don't covet other people's possessions, property, whatever, uh, wives, different things. Like that. He says, that's all sin. That's sin. He says, without the law, you would not even know that sin. But it's not that the law saves you. It's the law that makes you aware of what sin is. Now, who saves you? Jesus. And that's what he's going to continue to bring out. But he basically had made the point here that the things I want to do, I don't do. So he says, that sin in me that's doing it, he says, that's, that's of the carnal nature. That's not me. That's not my spirit. That's still the remnants of the flesh. That's what he's describing here, okay? I find the law that evil is present in with me. Verse 21, I'm just going to skip to. I find then a law that is evil and present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members waging war against the law of my mind. You see, there's a battle going inside in each and every one of us, right? A battle of the flesh versus the spirit. Galatians 5 tells us that too. And bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He's looking upon himself at that point, remember? We've all done that. Oh, how am I going to get out of this? How can I do this? The sin that's within me, and oh, wretched man that I am. But what is he saying here? Well, let's finish. And I'm so thankful for the conjunction here in verse 25. I thank God. There's the answer, friends. I thank God. 
Paul himself didn't possess it inwardly. He didn't have the answer. It was God. It was always God, and it's always been Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then with, with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. He's saying, look, I'm not a perfect man and that I keep sinning, I blow it, but that's not my aim, that's not my intention. But again, if you look back, he's saying the law is not evil there per se, right? That's not what we see. It's just the intention of the law is not to save. That's why keeping a kosher diet, while that may be healthy for you, uh, <laughs> isn't going to save you. Going to church on a particular day of the week, while that might be something you prefer, isn't going to save you, right? Uh, the only thing and the only one who will save you is Jesus Christ, and to add anything else to that is to take Jesus and put him back up on the cross and make it Jesus plus something. And that's called religion and not relationship. Turn to Galatians chapter 3, please. Let's look at verse 24 and 25. We th you know, I'm going to back up to 19. I'm going to back up to 19 here. Chapter 3, verse 19 in Galatians. Isn't it wonderful that we have the full counsel of God to study these things? We don't have to rely on man's wisdoms or some guy telling us what we think is right. We just go to the Word, and he tells us exactly how we ought to understand these things. I'm so grateful for the Word of God. What purpose, then, does the law serve? Verse 19 of chapter 3 of Galatians. It was added because of what? Transgressions. Because of sin. It wasn't, a good, it wasn't added because of good things. It was added because of transgressions. Chapter 3, verse 19. Till the seed, who's the seed? Till Jesus Christ should come to whom the promise was made. And it was, now when was that promise? Remember back to Genesis 3? Eve herself had begun to look for the seed that would come to redeem humanity. How many thousands of years later, right? Until Jesus Christ came. You think of Israel, how many thousands of years had they waited and prayed for Messiah? And Messiah came. Thank you, Jesus we have him in our hearts now. Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through the angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Once again, Paul says, certainly not. For if there had been a law given, which could have been given, given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. Do you see what he's saying there? He says, if the law could have brought righteousness then that's what it would have done. But the fact is the law can't bring righteousness. Only Jesus Christ does because we need a new nature. Because as Paul was talking back in Romans, we're carnal. We need to be born again, born of the Spirit. You can change. I'll give you a simple example. We're all saved today. If you're in here, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, those that are saved, I want to presume we're all saved. Forgive me. If you're saved, if you're not, don't leave here without talking to me. We, we need to talk about Jesus, okay? Don't walk out of here, please, without talking to me. But at the end of the day, God has reached into humanity to let you know how much he loves you and wants to save you from your sin. And those of us that believe that and have received that gift of grace, that a gift of atonement, are what we call born-again believers, John chapter 3. And as born-again believers in Christ, we no longer walk after the old things, right? Because the old things have passed away, all things have been made new. It's the carnality that's fallen away, Okay. Do we still have a sin nature? No. No, you don't. That's why Romans 6 says that we're no longer under the power of sin. 
the way we were before, which means we now have a choice. We choose to sin or not sin. That's the reality of it, right? We have a free will in that capacity. You know, Paul says, I do the things I do not want to do. The things I want to do, I do not do, right? That's the Apostle Paul, okay? I just, I always, when I read that, I always feel, oh, okay, Lord, right? Some of you maybe this could take a, yeah, hope. You could take a breath here, right? Okay, Jesus, right? But if the law was meant to bring righteousness in us, then by following the examples of the law, every one of us here would be righteous. Why did Jesus Christ need to go to the cross and suffer such a humiliating, humiliating, you know, death, such a gruesome wrath? I mean, as I just taught a couple of weeks ago, I mean, you think about it. it. It was the darkest time in history of all humanity. I mean, we've done some evil things, humans, haven't we, over the, over the course of history, 5,000, 6,000 years, young earth here. We, we've done some terrible things, but nothing like the day we crucified the Son of God. Nothing like that. That's why the darkness covered that portion of the earth, because God the Father, as he was witnessing his own son that day, I mean, you have children, and how much to watch one of your loved ones or somebody you care about, could you watch them go to the cross that way? I think if we're all answering, we'd say, oh, we want to say yes, but the answer is no. But God, our Father, loved us so much that he gave his only begotten Son that whomever should believe should have what? Everlasting life, eternal life with him. Amen. And that's his gift. That's his beautiful, beautiful gift. And so would he have done that? Did he, would he have needed to do that? Would he have needed to put him on a cross? If you could follow a law, if you could follow feast day and keep the ceremonial practices and, and do all these things, if that would make you in right relationship with God? I mean, would you have to kill thousands of bulls and goats and, and all these other things that were sacrificed year after year as a covering, but not as a removal of sin? The only time sin ever got removed from your account and mine was Jesus was in Yeshua, you know, Jesus Christ, our King, when he took our sin from us. Again, it's simple theology as we read these things, and it readies my heart. And you know what it does? It draws me closer to Jesus. Doesn't it draw you closer to Jesus? It doesn't draw you closer to self. It doesn't, it doesn't make you turn around and go, I want to be a better person tomorrow. No, it makes you go, I love you, Jesus, because you saved me from me. You saved me from me. Nobody and nothing else could do that. You alone, God are worthy to be praised. And that's why he's saying here, there's no other mediator. There's nothing that can do that. But the scripture in verse 22, but the scripture is confined all under sin. Romans 1 through 3 says that too, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ may be given to those who believe. That was a promise. Uh, Revelation chapter 8, or chapter 13, verse 8 before the very foundations of the world, that promise was made. God was going to redeem man because he loves you and he loves me and he wants a relationship with us. The God of the universe wants koinia in the Greek, fellowship. I mean, it just wrecks me. It wrecks me every time. You're never alone. No matter how bad your circumstances, no matter what you're going through this morning, you sit here in a family of God as a son or daughter of the living God what, what can, how bad can it be? Right? I mean, golly, we've got so many different things happening within this body. And, 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 and yet we have the greatest gift and the greatest thing that, and the greatest promise and hope that we will spend eternity with Jesus. 
the one who created us, who knit us in our mother's womb. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more sorrow. There'll be no more suffering. No more death. Come, Lord Jesus, come. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed, verse 23. Therefore, the law was what? Our tutor to bring us to Christ. Do you see that? It wasn't that it was the fulfill. It was a tutor. What's a tutor do? It gets you ready. You know, it teaches you. It gets you ready. It helps you. Recognizes things. That we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we don't go backwards. We don't go back to a tutor. We don't go back to the law. We don't do that. Because in so doing, what are we actually acknowledging by our actions, even if not by our heart? What are we acknowledging? That something in that law can do something that what? Christ couldn't. Has everybody thought about that? I think that's an important point. You can turn back to Timothy. That's why... The Jerusalem Council in Acts met to say that the Christians would not be under the law because they understood as well that the law doesn't save. And the tendency is that through false doctrine, through false teaching, if you remember back to chapter 1, verse 3, that's what Paul's been dealing with here in this church in Ephesus. What were these men are, you know, coming back in and doing? They were introducing portions of Judaism again. They were, you know, issuing portions of religion again. You know, we have to be careful of that. That's not what God has called us to. It wasn't, as we read here, underlining in your Bibles, again, if somebody ever says, well, you know, you're not circumcised. You didn't, you know, you're not eating kosher. You got to go to these feast days. You got to go to church on this day. Bring them right here. It was made, it wasn't made for the righteous person who walks by faith, again, according to Galatians chapter 3, right? For who, right? But who is the law made for? Because that's who we were before this. And by the way, I'm going to ask you, pick which one of these sins and verses 9 and 10. One of these were you. One of these were me. Some of these were all of us, right? We were all of them. Isn't it wonderful that you can look back? That's who you were. That's not who you are. But never forget who you are because it makes you less willing to pour into others because you think maybe you've arrived. Never let pride set in that way. Always keep that humble heart. Keep that humble heart there. It was for a lawless and insubordinate to do what? To show them their sin, to convict of sin. Paul's drawing out the fact that the law convicts against sin for the lawless, the insubordinate, for the ungodly, and for the sinners. Uh, that's why I, I don't seek after a law. I'm not one of those people any longer. Paul urged Timothy, teach no other doctrine in verse 3, right? Paul understood that these sinful actions, again, you can look through verses 9 and 10 and read them again for yourself, are contrary to sound doctrine. Exact opposite, you might say, of the word of God. And it's really important for believers to spend time with Jesus. It's incredibly important. We need to spend time in the word. It, it draws us near that way, right? 
It calibrates us. You've heard me say that before. It, it allows us to know God's heart and then to be able to see our heart and then allow our heart to be calibrated to God's heart so that we no longer walk out our heart. Okay, that, that's why we study the word of God, every jot and every tittle. That's why we don't even just look at the word of God topically, but every single word, because every word is inspired by God and every word is profitable. It's good. It's sound doctrine, okay? It keeps us from compromising. It keeps us from entertaining thoughts of the flesh. I, I think some people hearing this in, inevitably, uh, you know, maybe they get con condemned. I would use a different word. I think there's conviction, not condemnation. Condemnation is of the enemy. But we should all desire to keep God's commandments, statutes, and judgments. Right? Otherwise, you know what we end up being? A legalist. We get distracted. Did you know that legalism is actually a distraction? It's a distraction. Instead of focusing on the word of God, you ever see, sometimes you sit with people, none of you, of course, you sit with people at church, maybe you're visiting, you have a friend with you and they're constantly turning to you or they're, you're doing different things and you're like, Just, I'm trying to hear the word, I'm trying to listen to the word, right? You, sometimes that happens, right? It's a distraction. It's a distraction when somebody's not in the word or we're not lit, right? It's that, not that, again, nobody here, right? Nobody here, okay. Statutes and judgments, you know, are we listening to these things? Now, I will say this very clearly. Obedience doesn't make us legalists. We're legalists when we think what we do is what makes us right before God. That's important. Obedience doesn't make us legalists. It's what when we, when we live or do something that we think that's what makes us righteous before God that makes us a legalist. If you don't know Jesus, then the question is, is which one of you describes you or which one of these attributes describes you or these sins describes you in verse 9 and 10? Because I assure you, you're one of them if you don't know Jesus Christ. And I know that's hard to hear, but that's real love. That's real love to, to recognize I was many of these. I was a sinner. Without, without God's grace, I'd still be there. It's important to look back at these things. These things are to make us right before God. Again, we, not, we ought not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought, should we either. Remember, right? We're very capable of doing things that are sinful. We, we're, we ought to be careful of those things. Um, and I guess the only thing I draw out in this passage here as I was studying and the Lord just kept pressing on my heart is, hey, you haven't arrived and neither has any of my children. Only my son, Jesus Christ, and that's to lead them to me, God the Father. And if they will simply just obey my commandments, statutes, and judgments, if they'll simply give me their heart, mind, soul, and strength through all their strength, I can do the perfect work in them that they desire. I can free them addictions. I can free them of sin. I can take them off of the pornography. I can free them from all of these things if they'll only give me their hearts, what can't I do? And that's what we see here. Again, a very juxtaposition between the God's word and the sin of this world. Look at verse 10. We read in verse 10, if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. Now, why is he bringing this out again? Because 
He's saying, and if there's additional things in the list, but he's also reminding us that we ought to have a heart for those that are walking in those sins, not just to leave them there and go, oh man, that's, that's terrible. I'm sorry to hear that. I'm sorry that you're walking in that sin. Can you imagine what that would have been like if somebody left you and I in our sin and didn't tell us about Jesus Christ and the hope that lies? Can you imagine what that would have been like? That's not love. That's being a respecter of persons or wanting to avoid confrontation. But how often do we need to step in there when asked? Again, not, not Bible thumping, but how often when somebody asks or they come in for counseling, you see your brother or sister and there's sin going on. I don't care if it's at a game. I don't care where you are and what you're doing. And you sit there and you say, hey, let me ask you a question. And you do it gently. Is this sin? Because this is contrary to the word of God. Now, usually at that moment, it's very uncomfortable for everybody else around, right? If there's anybody else there because, oh, gosh, did he just do that? She just do that? Yeah. Why? Because if we compromise, do you think that that just doesn't snowball? Do you think that doesn't get larger or bigger? Of course it does. We can't control our sin. Our sin controls us in that regard, right? We don't, we don't turn around and, and just, a, what do you say, a little leaven, what? Spoils or leavens the whole lump. It's not like a little bit in there. Okay, we're good, right? No, no, no. The implication in Ephesus here was that those teaching false doctrine in some way allowed or promoted this sinful lifestyle. That's what we're reading here. That's why he says, is there any other thing that is contrary to sound, or any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine? He's saying that if you are witnessing this, say something in love, not being on a sin hunt, but if you've invested in a family or a people or a group, you can look to them and say, hey, is this what God would want you to do? You know, people that may be living together in sexual sin, they're not married. That We just read that was in here, right? Fornicators, that's what that means. You're having sexual relations and you're not married. He's saying very clearly here, that's sin, right? That's, that's not me. Don't get angry at me. That's sin. And if that's happening, right, that's not walking in the ways of the Lord. Now, I know there's everybody, somebody's going to say, well, are they saved? Look, if you're continuing in your sin, you have to ask that question. I don't know. If you accidentally have a you know, sin and you screw up here or there, it has nothing to do with the salvation. But if you're comfortable in your sin and you're like, I don't need to change, Jesus understands I love this person and he's okay with me living with them. No, no, no. You've made that sin your God, not Jesus your God. When you walk contrary to the word of God and you're comfortable in it, okay? There's a difference there. But I even ask our young people, when our young people are dating, are you dating? I mean, are we doing things that are honorable unto the Lord? These things matter. Everybody, don't oh, we'll talk about it. They're, they're, then, you know, they're kids. They don't, they don't want to come back. Yeah, I don't care. I, you know, 10, 13, 12-year-olds. I, I have these conversations with my boys. That's the first criteria. Are they a born-again believer in Christ? What are you doing? If not, are, spend time as a friend. Lead them to Christ. Amen? We need friends, don't we? We need godly friends. We don't need people also writing people off just because they're not saved either, right? Invest in that person. Be a friend. But don't have a romantic interlude type of deal, right? And adults, I say the same thing to you guys. Because that's compromise. That's sin, right? I'm just using something that is, you know, simple that we can pick out here this morning. But it goes the same thing with homosexuality. It says it in here very clearly in homosexuality. It's listed, right? 
So we want, you know, well, there's churches that are compromising right now and saying, oh, it's okay if you're a homosexual, you can come in and, uh, and you're, not, you're not wrong against God. There's no sin there. God loves everyone. Yes, he does, but he never compromised with sin. If you really love that person, sometimes you have to have that difficult conversation in a loving way to say, I'm sorry somebody lied to you. That's not what Jesus taught. No, Jesus wants all of you, and he wants to give you far better than what you think you're having in this, this homosexual lifestyle. He wants to give you a heterosexual lifestyle, one man, one woman in Christ Jesus, and you are going to have such a beautiful relationship. Be patient and wait on the Lord. You know, he wants to do the very best for you, not just give you good enough. He doesn't want to give anybody in here good enough. He wants to give you the blessings upon blessings. But to do that, we, can't, we have to do it God's way. And I'll leave you with one last thing on this point, and then I'm going to move on, because it's talking contrary to sound doctrine. In the days we're living, there's a whole lot of contrary to sound doctrine happening today. Amen? So it's important we're spending a few minutes on this. Uh, it's that idea of the compromise and the slippery slope there. Please be careful. Because if we are not gracious and loving in how we come to the person within the sin, right? We are not also representing Jesus. It's not good enough to go to somebody and just bring truth without love. If you bring truth without love, you're not representing Christ. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that again. If you bring truth without love, you're not representing Christ. If you bring love without truth, you're not representing Christ. It's the fullness of truth and love. He never compromised on either point. After all, love covers a multitude of sins, as we know, right? But he wants us to understand these things so that when we do invest in lives and each other like that and other people, we, we go about it the right way, not pushing people away from Christ, but drawing them to Jesus Christ. But we do have to ask the question, if you're living in sin and you're comfortable with your sin, why? What's drawing you there? What makes you think you know more than God? If you have a young person and they're in a, what are you doing? Why? Because then it's going to reveal the heart, isn't it? That I put, look, this is hard, I know, for some people to hear. But I put my sin before my God. And if that's an ongoing thing, you really got to question salvation. You got to question salvation. Again, I'm not always saying it's not a hard and fast rule. You can't make it that way. You can't make it a hard and fast rule. You can't say, oh, because they're doing this. No, they can be caught up in their sin, right? Love can be very, uh, very difficult to, to turn around and, and step away from that when you love somebody so deeply, but that person is an unbeliever and you, you want to marry them and you're a believer. The Bible forbids that, doesn't it? Yes, it does, because you'd be unevenly yoked. And so many people every year get married, and they go and they end up starting the relationship that way. And I have a question for you here this morning. Can God bless that marriage? I see some yes, I see some no's. Can God bless a marriage that's not based on his foundation? Because that would be going contrary to what? His word. It would, actually, it would actually convict the believer because it would be contrary to the word of God. If you are living in a homosexual lifestyle, 
and you say, but Jesus loves me, you are correct. 100% correct. But to think because you haven't been chastened means you're getting away with it or somehow God's okay with it in your situation, like you have a unique case because you really do love this other person, not like the other people that have homosexual lifestyle. I'll just say, you get the point, right? Our sin always looks so much better on someone else than it does on us. But we can begin to do that in our minds. We can begin to go through and try to, what's the word? Justify and turn around. And, and if we're not careful, we're building snowballs and we're rolling them down hills. And I know this is a very touchy and tough subject, but we're in the word of God. We're being told not to compromise. We're being told not to allow any other sound doctrine. That doesn't just mean in church. That means in your homes. For you and your house, you serve the Lord in every aspect of your life. Well, let's, let's keep going here. Uh, you know, I think the point is we shouldn't ignore sin issues in our lives. And the last verse in this section is, according to the glorious gospel of our blessed God. Though the law cannot bring righteousness, the glorious gospel and blessed God can. Amen? A gospel that, in the words of Paul, was committed to his what? Trust. Look at 1 Corinthians, please. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I love this passage where Paul describes this calling on his life. In verse, 1 Corinthians 9, he says, for, uh, chapter 9, sorry, verse 16, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid up. And yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. That's what Paul was called to do, preach and teach the word of God. He's saying, I can't boast about doing what I was called to do. I'm just doing it, right? Don't draw attention on myself. I want to draw it to God because he's the one that called me. I have nothing to do. For if, I'm willing, for if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I've been entrusted with a stewardship. He's saying either way, whether you want to do what God's calling you to do or not, he says either way, there's a stewardship there, something to be entrusted to you there, right? What is the reward then? that when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge, that I may not abuse the authority in the gospel. He took this very, very serious, the word of God, and, and so do I. You know, as I stand before you, I need to make sure my spirit, my heart is right before you before I enter this pulpit. I need to ask God to forgive me of any sin, that when I come in here and I speak, I don't speak my opinions. I speak the word of God. I share what God has, through the Holy Spirit, given me as we exegete, and then we go line by line and verse by verse, and I try not to muck it up, to be honest with you, and put my fingerprints on it. We need to talk about these things, right? And, and Paul is saying that it was committed to his trust. Friends, you're a royal priesthood, a precious people. The word of God has been committed to your trust as well. Handle your sword well, friends. Handle the word of God well. Teach in season and out of season. Be willing to give a reproof if needed, or encouragement, building up. You have the whole counsel of God, and you have him in your heart. If you're a born-again believer, what can't you do in Christ Jesus? Let's look at verses 12 through 14. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me. This is interesting as he comes back here. Because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Yet, he's going to kind of go back and reference who he was again. I wonder if that's because of verses 9 and 10 he started, to, that got a little close to home maybe for him as he was a murderer of Christians at one point. Maybe he got a little bit, you know, close to home as he was writing that through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he's like, a murderer. 
And he might have thought to himself, that, that was me. Although I was formally, please circle that. Every one of you, if you're a born-again Christian, formally, circle it, formally. That's who you were. That's not who you are. A blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, but I obtained mercy. I was given what I could never deserve or did not deserve because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. I, he says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me, right? Paul putting, or Paul was entrusted with the gospel, read that here, because Jesus enabled Paul, right? And Paul thanked Jesus for that enabling. Do you thank God for the calling he's given each and every one of you, the enabling he's given you, right? Paul was enabled for the ministry because he was counted faithful. Did you see that? Did, did Saul of Tarsus murder Christians? Yes, he did. You know your Bible. But yet we read here, it said that God, because that's the one who counts, God counted Paul faithful in the ministry. Faithfulness made Paul and every one of us here ready to be used by God. Now, we often see our Christian service as a matter of sort of volunteering. You hear that? We volunteer, volunteering, right? And as Christians, in regard to Jesus and his church, I want to be very clear. While we use the term volunteering, you are not volunteers and nor am I, really. Yet as Christians, in regard to Jesus, we are servants. We are slaves, if you want to use the correct term in the Greek. We are doulos. It means you are a bondservant. You are a called one. You have been blood bought, right? Every one of us can be faithful in the spear God has given us. So Christ enabled Paul because he was faithful and Christ put him into the ministry. Ministry, you know what that word means in the Greek? It simply means service. That's what that word means, service. You want to write that note in your Bible. In the Greek, it's, it has nothing to do with a high or, or a spiritual kind of calling about the word. It, it doesn't mean that. It's not like a special calling. No, it's service, whatever that means, whatever that looks like. It just meant that they were to work hard and you and I are to work hard and serve. Yet for this former, you know, blasphemer and persecutor of God's people, to think about Paul hearing this upon himself, as God would have given this, this, this was a great honor. And again, I draw the attention to though I was formally. Again, Paul's past didn't disqualify him, did it? Because he was repentant and he was saved. Your past doesn't disqualify any one of you in here. If there's someone or something lying to you and saying, I can't possibly, I'm disqualified, that's a lie from the pit of hell. There's not one of you that are disqualified in this room. I can tell you that if you're a born-again believer in Christ. God's mercy and grace is always enough to cover our past sin, our past, and enable you and I to serve God here. We should never feel that our past makes us unable to be used by God. And spread that good news of the gospel to all those that you encounter. Spread the good news because I feel like so many people are on the sidelines thinking they're unworthy, right? Paul may be sharing this with Timothy and I believe you and I because I do believe sometimes we feel unworthy, don't we? We feel inadequate, maybe incapable to the work that God has called us to. But I think the words from Paul and, and you know, he tried to assure Timothy, if there's anyone unworthy or disqualified, it should be me. 
I mean, he didn't say it in that way, but he kind of was saying that, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, insolent, but I obtained mercy. That's what Paul's saying there. He's like, if there's anybody that shouldn't be unworthy or unqualified or, or, you know, inadequate or incapable, the apostle Paul's saying, I'm the first guy. He said, and yet God had mercy on me. Timothy, God's going to have mercy on you and every other born-again believer in Christ. No one's disqualified. God can find a way to use me. He can find a way to use every one of us. So Timothy, remain in Ephesus. Don't run away. Stay. Again, pointing back to the heart, if you remember back in chapter 1, earlier on in those passages. But Paul also comes back here and he gives a little bit more information. He says, I did it ignorantly in unbelief, right? He said that, right? Ignorance and unbelief never, certainly never excuses our sin. But you know what they invite? Look at verse 14. They invite God's mercy, doesn't it? Doing something ignorantly in unbelief invites God's mercy, right? I like that, God's grace. If sin is due to ignorance and unbelief. God is so great, uh, gracious to redirect us when we get it wrong, if we come to him with a heart that is pure, a motive that's pure. I blow it all the time, friends. You know that. You've been around here more than a day. You've seen me blow it. And the reality is I don't have to pretend. I'm so freed by Christ in that that I can stand up here before you and you can see all of my, you know, issues my, my issues that I have. I don't know what else to call it. And you turn around and you, you come back because you hear the word of God, but you see that because of my heart, God so carefully redirects me when I get it wrong. He does that for all of us. You know, I always give that counsel when somebody comes into a counseling or my office or they're we're talking or the prayer room and, and they're really just beaten down and the enemy's just been, boy, having at them for hours and hours upon end. And they come in and they just feel, you know, torn apart and and how could I do this? How could I have gotten in this marriage? How could this have happened? How could my, my children, what was I thinking? Well, you know, they'll go on and on. The job. And I look at them and I'm like, you're not Jesus. Let's just clear that up for a moment. Right? I haven't arrived. You haven't arrived. Hold on. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Did you blow it? Yeah. But the fact that you're bothered by the fact that you blew it, can God not redirect you and with a, such a gentle hand and touch? Do you not think he wants to? Does not, does a good, have you ever found anywhere in scripture when there was a repentant heart, even with Israel? He always said, if you would what? If you would repent from your sin and come to me, I would restore your nation. That was an open door. That was an open door to Israel. That wasn't a sort of once and done, hey, you do it or don't do it. No, no, no. That's the same thing in our lives. We can sin. We can blow it. We shouldn't desire it. But at any time, we can come to him and he will forgive us and he will redirect us and put us back on that right path. Because that's by very definition, grace. Getting not only what we couldn't deserve, which is mercy, but getting what we could never deserve. That is grace. And that's what he's given us. Look at verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. Underline that. You're gonna, we'll read that a couple times. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. <laughs> so again, he uses this phrase five times. It's used primarily in all, all of the uh, three pastoral epistles we're reading. He uses it five times in three of the pastoral epistles. He says that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. He came to save us, not, that we not, would never live under the illusion of our own righteousness. That, that's the idea here. It is a sick person 
who needs a physician, as Jesus said. Look at Matthew. Hold your finger here. Turn to Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. It was declared very quickly to Mary in the beginning. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from what? From their sins. That's you and I. That's all Christians. That's you and I, right? Turn to um, Matthew chapter 9, verse 13. Those who are well have no need of a physician, verse 12. But those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did... For I did not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. Heaven's going to be full of forgiven sinners. Amen? Amen. Not perfect people. Separated, unless you count the imputed righteousness of Christ. Right? Please also know that he called it sin here. My Bible doesn't have in parentheses stuff. I make a big deal about that. Some of you are laughing because you know that's gotten popular today in a lot of the churches and a lot of the pastorates. They're calling it stuff anymore. Jesus didn't come in the world to save stuff or to save you from stuff. He came in the world to save you from your sins. He is your redeemer. He saves you from sin, missing the mark here. And therefore, sinners are certainly never disqualified from coming to God. Because Jesus came to save them, amen? Now, again, don't hide from the word sin. As I said, I know there's so many men in pulpits across the U.S., they don't want to offend people. But uh, if we don't identify what sin is, how can we ever talk about it? And how can we ever be calibrated to not walk in it? Does that make sense to everyone here this morning? It's not that I enjoy talking about sin like any of those other guys don't enjoy talking about it. I I don't. To be frank with you, I don't. But the reality is the Word of God talks about it. So if I want to be faithful unto Christ, I have to talk about it, right? Because I don't get to choose and substitute words and, you know, I'm not a walking uh, thesaurus that I can make stuff mean sin and different things. I don't have, as a matter of fact, there's a, a quite a, a large um, a word, anathema, that God uses for those that would try to ever change the Word of God to either water it down or mean something different. We need to identify sin because once we identify sin, then we identify the fact we need a savior. Do you see why it's a work of the devil? Because if he can call it stuff, you don't need a stuffer, right? You don't need, sorry, I know some of you crack it. It's okay. You can laugh. It's all right. I'm not going to be offended. A stuffer. We don't need a stuffer, right? You don't need a hot pocket, right? What you need is you need a savior, one that can forgive your sins. Listen, nothing wrong with Hot Pockets. Go ahead and eat them. I'll get calls on Monday. Kelly will be like, Pastor, we want to know how to respond to the Hot Pocket group. Um, no, no, we, Hot Pockets are not sinful. I, you get the point, right? We can have fun. This is, we should be able to enjoy this time in the Word of God. He goes through and he says, because of that definition of sin, even though he has now received salvation, he says, I'm the chief of that. He says, I'm the chief sinner. Paul claims to be the chief sinners. Um, and again, it wasn't a, a, an expression or some type of super pious, um, false humility that he was doing here. He generally felt his sins made him accountable for the Lord and others. 
And, and Paul was actually right in saying this. His sins were worse because he was responsible for the death, imprisonment, and suffering of Christians whom he persecuted before his life was changed by Jesus. You can see that in Acts chapter 8, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You can read about it, Galatians chapter 1, verse 13, Philippians 3, 6. All true. Acts chapter 26, verse 11, Paul, I'll read it to you. Paul explained to Agrippa that he might have committed the worst sin. And I, quoting Acts 26, 11, punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly enraged against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So what was his sin guilty of? Blasphemy. He was, he was compelling others to blaspheme. Verse 16, however, for this reason, I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern of those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. This is huge. Circle this passage. Did you just read that? Paul saved as a pattern of mercy to others. Rinse and repeat. Multiply. Healthy sheep. Right? However, for this reason, he said, I obtained mercy. A man that compelled others to blaspheme, Jesus, obtained mercy from Jesus. This means that the door is wide open to sinners, right? To come to Jesus and receive forgiveness. They're made a new creation. You and I. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. And it says it's as a pattern to those who are going, who are going to, those that haven't yet, but are going to believe on him. This explains another reason God <laughs> loves to save sinners. They become a pattern to those who are going to believe on him. You and I become the pattern to others that are watching. That look at who this guy was or who this gal was, and now look at who they are today. Nobody could have done that but Jesus. It becomes a pattern, right? To see how he can work in us and what he can do. And this truth, that's what we're talking about, the doctrine here, right, that changed Paul's life is the very truth he's telling Timothy, he's commanding him and commanding Timothy to command others to guard, to guard this truth, to not let any other doctrine be taught. This is what he's requesting, right? In verse 3, I urge you when I went into Master, remain in Ephesus, stay. That, no, don't just leave because it's, you know, easier, but no, stay because they that they'll teach no other doctrine. Are we willing to stand on the word of God? Are we willing to take a stand on the word of God? Even, friends, people are going to dislike you. Even your friends who you love, you, have, you love them so much. But sometimes you have to point out things that are an error in their lives. God's called you to do that. And you love them. And you, if you're being honest, you get insecure. What if they don't talk to me anymore? What if they don't like me? Those are the wrong questions. Love Jesus. Love them. And they'll see it's from a pure heart. And God will do the work in their hearts. Because you're just the messenger. And if you do it with a pure heart and the right motive, God will make that true to them. And whether it's them, their kids, your grandparents, whoever, your friends, your family, fill in the blank. That pattern will fall again. And those people will get saved, or if they're already saved, they'll begin to change their lifestyle. And you know what? The friends around them, they're going to see that. People come to Jesus. That could be a revival in that school, in that church, 
Yeah, I said it in a church because he's talking to a church in Ephesus here, isn't he? He's talking to believers. Look at verse 17. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Remember, he just reflected on what kind of a sinner he was and how God saved him. What's the natural reaction he begins to do? Worship. Worship. That's what we do. When we hear truth, initially we might wrestle with it for a minute, but then we begin to worship because thank you, God, that you have sent someone in our lives that loves us enough. Thank you, God, that you've given us the Holy Word, that you love us enough to not be a respecter of persons and to give us almighty truth, to give you yourself. He says, however, again, for this reason, I obtained mercy. He said that. Now he juxtapositions to now to the king eternal. Do you see that? Again, he moves from himself to the greatness of God, to the greatness of salvation, the greatness of love, the greatness of reconciliation, the greatness of being a child of God. And this results in amazing praise. You know, as I was writing this up in my notes, I immediately started to break out into amazing grace. Have you ever done that? You're starting to worship God. You're, you're, you know, you're in the word and you just start praising. And I'm like, amazing. You know, I just start singing to the Lord, worshiping him because this is amazing. The king eternal, right? Immortal, invisible to God who alone is wise. The outburst of praise shows that Paul both knew God and that he loved God. Again, everything's a pattern in some ways. This is what it looks like. The scripture defined God's attributes as the king eternal. The idea here is ruling and reigning in complete power and glory, right? A God to be immortal, existing before anything else existed and being the creator of all things. A God invisible, not completely knowable by us. We can't completely understand God in all his ways, his precious ways. God alone is wise, we think our plans and insights are so important, but only God really knows and understands. Be honor and glory forever and ever. We never stop worshiping God, regardless of our circumstances. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you that, that you them, excuse me, that by them you may wage a good warfare you know what he's saying? Timothy, carry on the good fight. Carry on the good fight. He's charging him, right? Whatever's happening to you, circumstantially, Timothy. Remember, he had some stomach issues. He had a lot of things, timidity. Uh, he was going through a lot of things in Ephesus, fearing of, you know, what they're going to, the, these men that are teaching these alternate doctrines and everything like that. As we're going to continue reading in First and Second Timothy, that'll be brought out. There's all these things going on. And Paul just wants to give him a word and an encouragement. And he uses, again, that word um, parangelo in the Greek. He says, I charge you. It's a command, right? It means I command strictly, just as we read in verse 3. It's actually a military referred, uh, word referring to a commanding officer giving you a command. I command strictly. And at the same time, we see the beautiful love from, Tim, or from Paul, don't we? My son, Timothy. Because after all, isn't it the fullness of truth and the fullness of love? Again, you can always see when it's from God and when it's from man. You can just clearly see what's nested in it. He expresses his fatherly love. Paul is very serious here with now with Timothy in this matter. But he's also serious about love too. He says, according to the prophecies. Now, I would just take a few minutes because we're at our time here. Take a few minutes just to talk about this. Paul wanted Timothy to consider what the Holy Spirit had said to him through others in the past and receive courage to remain in Ephesus, 
to instruct those to stay in the proper doctrine. Now, apparently God had spoken to Timothy, right, through the others, maybe through the gift of prophecy. And I'm, I'm going to talk about this because I, I know there's been talks about this. And I, some of you remember when we talked through 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14, we went through this in great detail. But we've had some new people and just, and it's also been a couple, you know, I was going to say months, years uh, since we've gone through that book. So I just want to take a moment just to remind you that just because it says prophecy doesn't mean it's not a word of encouragement. Remember, prophecy as a gift in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, as we read about prophecy, it can be foretelling, foreknowledge, but it can also be a word of encouragement to build up. Okay, very, very important here. Somebody could have the gift of prophecy and go up to you and you're with that person and you walk away feeling incredibly encouraged about, you know, from being in that person's presence. That, it's not that they were given, you know, the gift of a word, as you would say it in scripture, but they were given the gift of prophecy. They're an encourager. They're a builder up. They build people up and they just have that gift. And when you're around people like that, you recognize that because you come away just more in love with Jesus and more, you know, at peace in your heart, right? Well, whichever, whatever, whichever one here, we're not told, you know, it, it doesn't say whether, uh, you know, this is a predictive, predictive future telling. Um, the context usually determines the way this Greek word is used. The context here doesn't give us any additional information. So we don't know, like in Corinthians, we knew foreknowledge or foretelling. It, we don't have that here. So apparently something happened in, in Timothy's life with somebody with a gift of prophecy either gave him a word of encouragement or maybe he told him about something that would happen or would come. We know Paul had prophesied in Acts that there would be these false teachers bringing false doctrine. You remember that from a few weeks ago? So that was prophetic, but he, that was prophetic to Paul. That was not prophetic word given to Timothy. That was given to the Ephesian elders at the time. So we can't take that. I know some scholars have gone back and said, well, I know it was prophecy because of this. No, the intended audience of that was the Ephesian elders, not Timothy. So clearly we just don't know. I think we have to be comfortable with that and say sometimes we just don't know in the word of God. If it, is it foretelling or an, or an encouragement? But he speaks, no matter what, we know there was some component of this of edification, exhortation, and comfort to men. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 3, right? So again, some of us here may think it's strange, right? When God would use someone to come up to us and speak in a prophetic manner, but we should take, we shouldn't think it's strange. We shouldn't, honestly, the gifts are alive and well today. We shouldn't think it's strange that somebody comes up and gives us a word of encouragement as long as it's being done according to scripture, 1 Corinthians. If somebody comes up and tells you don't get on a plane because blah, 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 blah is going to happen. Um, do you feel encouraged by that? Generally not. So maybe that's not the word of prophecy. Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. But what does God tell us to do? 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 29. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21. John 4. Test every spirit to know whether it be from God. Look at the spirit you're receiving. Is it contradicting the word of God? Anything like that that happens, right? You are to test all prophecy according to both the word of God and the witness of the Holy Spirit, Right? That, they, that them you may wage a good wherefore. The focus really isn't on the prophetic word here. That's in Corinthians. Timothy had heard that in the past. We know that. The focus is on the battle that's right in front of him now. And he says to him, he must wage a good warfare. The focus for you and I is on the battle going before us right now. Whether that's a battle of your health, whether that's a battle physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, wage the good warfare. It's not over till God says it's over. I never read in my scripture about some fat lady or some fat man. It's God that declares. 
You, you know what I'm talking about, right? Some of you are like, what does he mean? Yeah, don't look that up. Just, just wipe that out of your memory. You believe that guy up there just mentioned it? What's wrong with him? Doesn't he have a filter? Anyway, wage a good warfare. That's what the Word of God says. Fight the good fight. That's for every one of us here. Fight the good fight. Let that be a word of encouragement. Whatever you're going through, fight the good fight. You never quit. Look at verse 19. Having faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. Faith and a good conscience, two things here we're to have. These are essential for fighting a battle. And when the Lord is calling us into the battle, he wants to protect us. And the things he gives us is faith and a good conscience. What are the opposite of that? What's, how does the spiritual attack come that's the opposite of that? Well, you've gone through a trial or a tribulation in your life or a difficulty or affliction, persecution. What is it? It's doubt. It's condemnation, right? You're condemned. And what's the exact opposite of doubt? Faith. What's the, you know, the exact opposite of condemnation? A good conscience. That's why he tells us here, write that down. Timothy, you, I, right? For that matter, we all need to have faith that God is in control. He guides him as Timothy continued to seek him, and he guides us. It says, which some having rejected. Now, some having rejected this. What did they do? Instead, they, they settled for doubt and condemnation. They rejected the weapons they were given. And therefore, what did they really reject? The faith. Those who reject what Jesus and the apostles taught are headed for a ruin or shipwreck. And that's why it's important to tell people what the word of God says. If somebody's living contrary to it and they're unaware, or if they are and they're continuing to be rebellious, the reason you tell them is because they are heading towards shipwreck. Sin wrecks people's lives. And it doesn't just wreck your life. It's like selfish because it wrecks everybody else's life around you because we love you and we don't want you to fall into sin or we don't want you to, to have these things happen to you. It breaks our hearts as much as it breaks yours, as much as it breaks God's. If we love you the way God has commanded us to love you in scripture and desire to love you that way, it should break our hearts. We don't want to play Christian and we don't want to play church. Keep the faith. Have a good conscience. Reject condemnation. Right? Reject doubt. It's so easy. And sometimes all we need is a good word, don't we? We just need a good word from a brother or sister, a helpmate, your wife, your husband, somebody like that when you're going through something. All you want to hear even though you know ultimately God has you and you're going to go be with Jesus no matter what, sometimes you just want to hear it's going to be okay. Even if it's not okay the way you think it's going to be okay, the fact that it is okay because God is in control. You just need that word of encouragement. And we'll close with verse 20. Of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. You know why Paul knew what blaspheming was? Because he was a blasphemer. And he was able to see it in others. Don't our sin look better in other people? <laughs> of course they do. But he's able to recognize that sin. 
and he's able to turn around and say, hey, I love these guys, and I know they're not going to love me right now, but I'm going I'm I'm to let them be buffeted so that they get broken, so that they come back and choose not to sin. I'd rather lose them for a time and gain them for eternity. You see, that's the hard lesson. Lose them for a time, but gain them for an eternity. Now, we know nothing about these men other than Paul, what Paul says of them here, right? Some say, is this like the Alexander from Acts? We, we don't know. Paul apparently disobeyed them, disciplined them for some type of disobedience for, you know, heresy or something to that effect. Obviously, in conduct or in both, we know that because it says blasphemy. We know that Paul was not afraid to point it out, right? You can look at Romans 16, 7. It's called noting. <laughs> That's the biblical term for it. I noted another person's sin, right? It's pointing it out, but it's opponents of the truth by name. He's not afraid to call these two men out by name. He's not a respecter of persons. He says, whom I delivered to Satan. Again, from other New Testament passages, we, we can surmise that he did this by putting them outside the church, right? Into the world, which is really the devil's domain. Why would he put them outside the church? So Satan could buffet them. We read that in Corinthians. Why? Because the church is meant to be a covering. And if we, again, if, if, there, if somebody's engaged in sin, but it's not affecting other people, you know, certainly we're not, the church would be empty, right? I mean, like all, I wouldn't be here, right? Like all... But if you have someone trying to, as again, a blasphemer, that means someone that's teaching a heresy or someone trying to convince others to do the same thing, what are they doing? They're, they're not just sinning, but they're spreading their sin. You see the difference? And they're, they're creating doctrines of sin, doctrines of heresy. They're, they're actually trying to create students of their, new, of their newfound faith. You know, the punishment was removed from protection. But what's the goal? 2 Corinthians, we read that in chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. The goal is always reconciliation. It's never to keep somebody outside of a church so that they don't get the word. No, it's so they get broken because, you know what, I've never met a person yet alive, and I've been in ministry a while. I've never met a person in my life that at one time or another, some people have to get very, very low to get broken. But I've never met a person that didn't get broken. And you know one of the funny and strangest things? is they'll call you up, even though you may not even have been a close friend of theirs. But they'll go to you because you stood against, while everybody else was compromising, agreeing with the lifestyle they were doing and things to sin and everything, you stood against it and, and you loved them. That's important, right? And you love them. And so now when they have all these questions, like why is this happening? And the other people now that were with them just because it was the good times and all the good times were flowing. Well, the good times dried up when you're broken like that. And all of a sudden, the friends you thought that were friends, guess what? You look to your left and right, and they're gone. Those friends aren't there anymore. And you start to realize it's me and Jesus, right? Or maybe you don't even know that if you're not a believer. You don't recognize that yet. What is this? Why is this happening? What's going on? Those are hard lessons, aren't they? Those are powerful lessons of the heart. But God is allowing that so you can see he's freeing you from the affairs of the world. He's freeing you from those. And all of a sudden, you start to want to put yourself around believers, that are going to encourage you and equip you, not take you down. But the goal is to reconcile you, to bring you into that. You know, the Lord, I want you to know, the Lord protects us from many attacks. Job chapter 1 verse 10 says specifically that Satan goes and asks 
you know, for health and, you know, kill Job, you know, kill his children, do all these things. And, and God's like, no, you can do this, but not that. It, it, Satan wants to destroy every one of us. And God says no very often. Sometimes he says, okay, you can do a little bit of this, but it's either to draw me or you're a witness because people are watching how you're handling that circumstance and you actually draw people to Christ. And as terrible as it is to suffer and go through terrible heartache, if just one person came to Jesus Christ, wouldn't it be worth it all? What wouldn't you give up? You know, that's what we used to say. We had friends that went to Africa. Their little girl fell off a two-story. They built huts, and a lot of times they built them up in the, the trees and things like that because animals and things, you know. Um, and the little girl fell through the trap door. They had built a trap door. The trap door got open. The mom, they had about seven kids, delivered a baby over there. She turns. She walks. Little girl comes. Boom. Two stories down. Lands. Bounces. How old was the child? Was one, two? Not even two years old. That should have killed that child. Got up. Started running around and playing. What? Two stories? You don't think that was difficult? You don't think that circumstance was like, what are we doing here? All right, we got to go home. Forget this. This just got real. This just got real, didn't it? Oh, time, time to throw in the towel. It's too hard now. No, welcome to the ministry. Welcome to the ministry. Have faith and a good conscience. Be prepared to fight the war. Don't quit. The Lord protects us. And much of this protection comes as a covering from the church. And in this, Paul gave Timothy one more reason to remain in Ephesus, didn't he? That the doctrine be taught. Why? To protect those around him from sin and judgment. In chapter 1, we read of six different reasons why we should be able to follow the pattern of Paul's command to Timothy to remain in Ephesus. Follow no other doctrine and never give up in difficult times. Amen? That's a word so fitting for us today in the times we're living for such a time as this. Will you stand and pray with me? I pray you go back and read this one more time and listen to the teaching and let it just minister and change hearts because I know there's people here this morning that need to hear this. I need to hear this. We need that word of encouragement. Father, we just thank you, Lord. We thank you that... Um, we don't grow tired or weary, Lord. This service could have gone three hours. Lord, we want to hear what you have to say. In these last days, we know that we're running short on time to be able to have the precious liberties and freedoms we have to study your word. Lord, I, I know that, just speaking myself, I never saw or even thought a COVID would ever come where we would be shut down, Lord, for such a, just a short period of time, whether it was just this church or so many in California, Lord, had to stay shut for so long. I imagine, Lord, all those people never thought it was going to come when it did as quick as it did either. Lord, we just really don't know what's around the corner. So, God, it's important. You've just made it ever clear to us, and you've given us a word here this morning to stay the course, to literally hang on every word that you've given us by your grace, to seal all this in our hearts so that we would be able to stay the course not veer, to not run when it gets difficult, no matter how sick we feel, Lord, because often we do get sick, God. We take upon all of these negative emotions from this world and the hate and the evil, and Lord, it, it, it hits us right to the pit of our stomachs. 
But Jesus, you who's in us is greater than anything that could ever be in the world. So God, we pray that you will just as a light, a beam, just echo throughout all of humanity right now, your truth, your love, and that you would use us undeclarative, Lord, in a way that could never be denied, that you are king, you are sovereign, you are Lord, and you save sinners, Jesus. And Lord, that's my prayer, that if anyone here this morning doesn't know you, don't let them walk out of here today, Jesus. If somebody hears this on the radio, don't let them turn the radio off without calling the church. Lord Jesus, I pray, please, save now. Asa'ana, Lord. Hosanna, save now. Save your people. Your time is coming, Lord, where these choices here will have eternal consequences. And Lord, there's such a lost population that needs you, Jesus. Save now, Lord. We pray this in your holy name, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you all. I love you all. Keep the faith with a good conscience.